Well, good morning. Well, the feeding of the 5,000, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the shepherds here. And um, we're going to jump into this story out of John about the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of the, the one of two miracles that shows up in all four Gospels. So there's a lot of different miracles that Jesus does, but they get picked up by the different Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 is one that shows up in all four. The other one is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you have this part where all four authors decide that somehow this story impressed on them something that they wanted to make sure the story got told. It's also the story that has the most people that got impacted by it. Um, We heard about the the guy who was healed at the pool, and it was one person. Here, 5,000 people, and one of the versions lays it out that it was 5,000 men plus women and children. So the number could have gone much, much higher, but the idea is there's a lot of people that saw this happen, a lot of people that experienced it. All four authors wanted to talk about it. And as you look at it, there's a couple of details that show up in all four, and then a lot of other details that are particular to a particular author that wanted to point out a few things. And we're going to spend our time today looking at a few things that John pointed out. But in the process, the things that show up in all four are that there were 5,000, and that it was uh, on this hillside, and that there was grass there why that mattered, and that he has them sit down, and that he prays, that he, there are five loaves and two fish, and that then from that point it goes out, is distributed to everybody, and that everybody got their fill. All four of the Gospels talk about the fact that everybody was filled and satisfied. And then all four talk about that there were 12 baskets that were collected and the fragments and the broken pieces came in. Now, that's the essence of the story, right? So that part of the story shows up in all four Gospels, and then there's some uniqueness. And the uniqueness in John is this turn to where it's about identities. He ends up being the only Gospel that actually names names. Apart from Jesus, Jesus' name shows up in all four, but the rest of the characters are... Are just simply the disciples. Even the boy is not mentioned in any of the other gospels, only in this one. It talks about finding the five loaves and the two fish, but in this one it says where they got it from the boy. And here Philip is mentioned, and Andrew is mentioned, even Simon Peter is mentioned. So clearly what we have in John is we have the, this part of anchoring down this story and saying this is where it took place, all these people were there, this is what happened, and now he's going to tell us the story particular to those individuals that were there. So that's where we jump in. Um, A couple of other little key tenets about it that are just fun is that this is one of the only creative miracles that Jesus did. And to explain that, you realize that most of the miracles Jesus does is he may walk on water, he may heal somebody who is blind, he may tell a lame man to rise up and walk, but it's about amending things or changing things or healing things. And this particular one, it's where he actually makes things and he creates. And the only other time that he does this is in the the wedding feast at Cana where he turns the water into wine and he makes way more wine than they had. So the two creative miracles that show up in scripture, we're having communion today, happen to be those two things. That he made bread and he made wine. And those of you who want to figure that one out, go study it later on your own time. We're talking about something else here. So get your attention back, will you? So here's the question. 
that Jesus puts to it. And we're going to read it, and we're going to look at it in detail as we, we, we see what's happening. As we look at verse 5 in chapter 6, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? This concept of this little interaction, I don't know about you, but when I first see it, I get a little bit like, man, Jesus is kind of like laying him out right there. It says that Jesus knew what he would do, and then he just comes up and asks Philip a question, and and knowing that he's already got an answer of how he's going to do it, why even ask the question of Philip? But listen to the question, because the answer starts to reveal itself a little bit in the question. Where are we to buy bread? Philip's answer, 200 denarii isn't enough for everybody. We would still not be able to feed everybody with 200 denarii. That wasn't the question. The question wasn't how much money do we have? Is it enough? Those weren't the questions. The question was, where are we to buy bread? And I love this on a couple of of levels. One is the we. This is a really fun part that what Jesus is doing is he's saying, we, where are we to do this? He's inviting. He already knows what he's going to do. He's inviting Philip to be a part of what they're about to do. And so many times God does this. He invites us in to what he's going to do anyway, but he brings us in so that we can actually be on the front lines, get 50-yard line seats at what's about to happen. And this is what, what happens. Now, a thing about the where, though, one of the reasons why the where might have been there is because this took place on a, on a mountainside next to Bethsaida. It didn't, other Gospels refer to the location particularly and say this is right outside of Bethsaida. And guess where Philip was born and raised? Bethsaida. This is his hometown. This is his neighborhood. This is where he grew up. This is his village, his town. And Jesus turns to Philip and says, where are we to buy bread? Like, in other words, if you ask me, I'm most recently from Seattle, and where I lived in West Seattle, there was a really great bakery called Bakery Nouveau. And Bakery Nouveau, if you ever go to Seattle, go to Bakery Nouveau, get twice-baked almond croissants. They are awesome. The whole bakery is awesome. When it opens at 7 in the morning, there is already a line down the street because everybody has figured out that it's awesome. If you were to ask me, Jesus were to ask me, If Jesus were to ask me, where are we to buy bread? I would go, Bakery Nouveau, West Seattle. It's awesome. And that's what they would have eaten that day. I'm pretty sure. That's the way this question comes out is he asked Philip, coincidence that that's the one guy who knows where the bakeries would be in town? We don't know. What we do know is that he asked Philip, and as this story comes out, the difference is the question he asks is, where are we to buy bread? And Philip's answer is, we don't have enough money. 
Now, he could say we don't have enough money or that the bakeries are too far because some of the Gospels refer to they were out a ways. They had gone off into a desolate place. So he could say it's too far to the bakery. I can tell you where there's a good one, but it's too far away. Or he could have said, you know what, where are we to buy bread? These people are probably on keto diets. They're gluten-free. There's not, well, what are we going to do with that? And we come up with these things with God all the time, though, don't we? He lays something before us and we stop and we think of all the reasons why it won't work. But that's not the question. The question is, why won't this work, Philip? Can you tell me some of the challenges? What are are the, the hardships we're gonna come up against? He doesn't ask that because of who he is. Philip thinks that because of who he is. You understand the difference in the identities at play here. We have two men standing side by side having a conversation and their identity matters. And John pulls this out and he says that this whole thing takes place there, this conversation. Jesus is focused on the crowd coming near him. He sees their needs and he remembers that and he responds to that. Now you need to know also that what's happening is the disciples have just been sent out two by two to go out and preach the gospel and do good deeds and to do miracles of their own. And they are coming back exhausted. One of the gospels refers to this moment and says that they didn't even have time to eat because the crowds were so pressed in around them. So they themselves are really hungry. They themselves are tired and Jesus wants to get them apart. And that's why they go up onto the mountain. So at this point, they'd also received news that John the Baptist had just been beheaded. So they're emotionally drained. They're physically drained. They're hungry. This is a moment where they're in a different mood. And we can set that off to Philip to go. That's what he was feeling at this point is that he was tired. He was hungry. He was emotional. But Jesus still asks him the question, where are we to buy bread? And he says, ah, we don't have enough money. It's too far. People are gluten-free. These are the challenges. Woe is me. He's focusing on his own needs. He's focusing on his own shortcomings. Jesus, on the other hand, is just as tired and probably far more emotionally invested And he looks out at the crowd and he sees their need and he puts aside his needs and focuses on their needs. That in, even when we're tired, there's still this example of those are the times when we notice the needs of others, not focusing on the needs of us. This all takes place right in this setting. And as Philip's focusing on his needs, Jesus is focusing on their needs. Then at this point in time, we get this question that, uh, of, Is it possible that Philip didn't fully know who he was with? Yeah, that's really possible, right? Like when we hear this story and we know that he fed the 5,000, that gives us a little hint about what's to happen. Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows how he's going to go down. Philip does not know how it's going to go down. And he has questions about, we don't have enough money. Everything he comes up with is the things that the flesh could do. It's the arm of flesh. It's what I can do as a person. I'm going to come up short, Jesus. I can't do this, Jesus. And Jesus, who happens to be the creator of the world... The one who made everything, he is our savior, he is our redeemer, he is the son of God, he is the alpha and the omega, he is standing next to Philip, and he asked Philip, and I think the tone of voice was probably a little smile, where are we to buy bread? Like, Philip, let's do this, let's feed them all, where should we get the bread? 
And Philip is like, no, we don't have enough money. It's too far. People are gluten-free. That we, he leaves it at what that part is, not realizing who this is, who the identity of Jesus is. And to this day, that's still my biggest problem about trusting God, is whether I really believe who he says he is is who he is. Now, sometimes when we're standing next to somebody famous, the thing, different things happen. And I, I've noted that sometimes in, if you're in a crowd and somebody famous comes up, you notice everybody else notices the crowd starts moving towards them. They bring out their phones and they're doing selfies with them. And everybody goes crazy about being with somebody famous. But this idea of understanding and knowing who you're with, if it's somebody that's, that's powerful or well-known, we start to act differently by the process. Now, Several years ago, when I was working, uh, I was the president of Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, and we would send out these vans, and I talk about these vans all the time, the search and rescue vans, primarily because they're pretty powerful ministries, and a lot of stories happen when you go out in these vans, and so I have stories for days, you'll hear more. But this particular story takes place on these search and rescue vans where we would send them out all over King County to find homeless encampments and we would love on the people. We'd bring them blankets and sandwiches and hot chocolate and socks and gloves, things like that. But primarily the relationships to bring them back to the mission so we could just simply love on them, share the gospel, helping them with the recovery or however they needed to get off the street. So we would do this on a regular basis. And in the van, we would have somebody from our program that would be in recovery. They would drive the van. And then we'd have somebody else who was a volunteer so that as other people got in the van to go out and help serve, if they had questions about homelessness or about addiction or about the, the job that the mission was doing, if they had any of these questions, they could ask that volunteer and they would answer the questions for the people. So one particular night, I invite six of my friends. They're all different guys throughout Seattle that we would hang out and do all kinds of things together. And this particular night, it's the six of them and myself. And we get in the van and the volunteer, as we go along and we'll pull up and somebody will say, well, what happens if we bring somebody in? And she would answer. But every now and then they would ask a question like, well, why is this neighborhood a heroin neighborhood? How did heroin make a foothold here? And she was like, well, I don't really know. Well, I knew, and so I would answer the question. And I would say, well, the reason why this neighborhood, and then I'd explain it, and then we'd go to another spot, and they'd ask a question, and she didn't know, and so I would answer. And then another question, and I would answer, and then after a while, she stops and says, who are you? And I said, I didn't say anything. I just said, well, I've come, who are you? Why do you know all the answers to these questions? And I said, well, I come out on the van quite a bit. So I, I've been out enough that I, I kind of know some of the answers. And I didn't want to embarrass her. I didn't want to say, well, I'm the president of the mission. So I didn't say that. I just said, I just have come out on the vans. And so I, I kind of make a study of this and know a little bit about it. And then my friends started laughing because they knew who I was. And they just started going, you don't know who he is? And she's like, am I supposed to know who he is? And that only made him laugh more. And so, who is he, she says. And so, one of the guys says, he's the president of the mission. And she's like, no, he's not. <laughs> yes, he is. No, he's not. If he was the president of the mission, I would know him. Oh, all right then. And so, they went back and forth and teasing. And, and so, she finally is like, gets tired of them. And she turns to me and she looks at me and she says, so seriously, honestly, are you the president of the mission? And I said... Yeah, 
I am, but you need to know also that this guy, and this is all true what I'm about to tell you, who these six guys were. One of them was Les Parrott. He writes about marriage and family and counseling, and he has like eight books that are New York Times bestsellers. So I said, I, yeah, I am, and this guy is a New York Times bestseller. And then this guy right here at the end of the seat, that guy used to be the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. And then that guy right behind him used to be a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. The guy behind him is a neurosurgeon. The other guy's a top um, of attorney in Seattle. And then the one last guy is, uh, is a race car driver. She goes, yeah, I knew you weren't. <laughs> this is the thing, is that in that moment, I never told her who I was. Not that night. I let it go. I never gave her my business card because I was afraid it might humiliate her. But Jesus, in this moment, and nobody knows who he is, Jesus pulls out his business card and he lays it on the table. He pulls out the bread and he feeds 5,000 people. There are 5,000 plus witnesses that all see, taste, and are filled by who this man is, what he does. Philip, and in his insufficiencies, looks at it and says, it's improbable that we can feed these people. Well, Mr. Improbable, meet Mr. Probable. Here's Jesus who then comes out and takes an entirely impossible situation and creates enough food to feed 5,000 people and still have leftovers. He puts his card on the table and says, this is who I am. I am the creator of all things. Things that did not exist before now exist. Does that sound familiar? Like maybe Genesis 1? That's who he lays down his card to be. And he says, this is who I am. Jesus, that Jesus, invites Philip in. You see this challenge of just not knowing who God is. I, I love the quote by Eric Tonis who says, pretty much every problem we ever have is because we don't really know who God is. If we would know who he is, what his character was, we would trust him with everything. So think about even Adam and Eve in the garden they're close, no sin, they're with God, but then they venture off, they take the fruit of the, of the tree, but at that moment in time, there's a question about what God's intentions were, and Satan puts lies into their heart, and they're not sure who God is, and the problems begin there. And the problems begin in my life every time I don't really believe who God is, and this is where Philip is stuck in this moment of not realizing who he is with. But then this verse comes up and it says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. And this one just bugs me. It's like, Jesus, if you knew what you were going to do, why put him on the spot? Why not just do it? Why not just feed the 5,000? But this test, we look at it and go, Philip failed it, right? Like, he, he, where would he buy bread? He doesn't even answer the where part. He doesn't do it. So Philip gets an F, Right? I'm not so sure. I think we're asking the, the wrong question in this sense, that the testing is not pass or fail for Philip. This testing, what it means is actually the testing of his faith, the proving of his faith. This is the, the crucible for Philip. He's about to be heated up, and it's going to reveal his weaknesses and his shortcomings. It's that kind of testing. It's that testing that stops and says, Philip, there's parts of you that still don't believe I am who I say I am. 
And do you know why I can say this with confidence that this is what is happening? Because not only does Jesus know exactly what he's going to do, but this story goes on. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John 14. That once again, Jesus has a conversation with, with Philip, and the problem is identical. And in chapter 14, Jesus is teaching, and we're going to jump in at verse 7. And it says, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? And then jump down to verse 12 and listen to what he says next. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Greater works than these, whatever I do, you will also do. You ready for this? Turn to Acts 8. In Acts 8, we have Jesus who's been discipling Philip who's been testing Philip, who's been putting Philip through the proving grounds to make him better, to make him pure, to put him to a point so that he's changing and he's being transformed by this testing. Now look what happens. Um, In the last part of chapter 7, Stephen has been stoned. Persecution is going heavy against the believers in Jerusalem, and they begin to scatter. And that's where we jump in in verse 4 of chapter 8 of Acts. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, the same Philip, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. So again, just so you understand, before he didn't know him, now he's out preaching about him and he's saying, do you know who this was? Do you know who this is? And he's preaching about the person and the identity of Jesus. And then verse 7. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. Remember what Jesus just said? You will do the works that I do, and greater than these you will do. In fact, jump to the the middle part of the chapter. In verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. You know this story, right? This Ethiopian eunuch goes to Jerusalem. He gets this prophecy of Isaiah. He's traveling back, and he's out in the desert somewhere reading Isaiah. And Philip comes trucking along, runs and catches up with the chariot. And the guy looks at him and says, do you understand this, this Isaiah thing? It's talking about this guy, and I know nothing about the guy. Who is it talking about? And Philip says, I know him. This is Jesus. And he begins to teach the whole gospel, beginning with Isaiah, and he expounds on who Jesus was. And as they go along, the guy ends up giving his life to Christ and becomes a believer. And they see a a pool of water and he stops and says, hey, what's to prevent me from being baptized? So they stop the chariot, they get out, and Philip starts to baptize him. And as he baptizes, (laughs) look what happens next. This next thing is just, it's just fun. And... uh, 
Verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns, and he came to Caesarea. Poof. He's just been transported. Do you understand that when Jesus stops and asks the question, where are we to buy bread, and Philip says there's not enough money, Jesus could have multiplied the money. He could have made more money. Philip said, well, we only got 200 denarii. Whoa, where'd all this come from? Hey, I got another bag. Will you do that again? You know, there's a possibility that he could have multiplied the money. He could have multiplied the bread like he did. He could have taken away their hunger. He could have transported Philip to Bakery Nouveau in West Seattle and brought twice-baked croissants. He could do whatever he pleased to do And this is the most important part of understanding who Jesus is. And it says it right here in the passage in John. Let's go back to John. In John 6, it says, And Jesus said this to Philip to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now notice the difference in this. He didn't say, for he himself knew what he was going to attempt to do, what he was going to try to do. This isn't about efforts like maybe I'll do this. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He already had it planned. It was already set in motion. This idea of trying and attempting is the same mindset that that Philip had. That he's like, we don't have enough. I don't think we should try this because we wouldn't get enough for everybody. And Andrew brings up the little boy and says, five loaves, two fish. But what is that? We can't even try with that. It's not enough. Jesus knew what he would do, and we try, and we attempt. Jesus doesn't try, he doesn't attempt. This whole thing about attempting, the last couple of days, it's been sunny out, and after all the rain, I've looked out, and I thought, I'm going on a hike today. I'm going to go up in those green hills, and I, I picked a spot, and I drove over to it, and I got to the trailhead, and it said, closed, due to rain. I'm like, it's not raining. It's sunny outside. So I went to another trailhead and said, closed. I went to another one and said, closed. I went to five different trailheads and I drove all over Orange County to different trailheads and they were all closed. What's with you people? (laughs) Seattle, it rains all the time. If they close their trails because of rain, nobody would ever get outside. You just got to go. And here it's like, well, I know it's sunny, but it rained once. All right, I'm not here to pick on you. The point is, is that sometimes when we attempt, there's external forces that keep us from doing it. And sometimes there's internal forces. So my youngest son, he was adopted at age four. That his mom was a uh, uh, heroin addict, an alcoholic, and she lived on the street for a while. He ended up in shelters. We were able to reach into his life and grab him, and we pulled him to live with us up at Hume Lake. One summer day, we're at the swimming pool. He's got older brothers and sisters. We're all in the pool. He's in the shallow end. He doesn't know how to swim, and he's not good at it. And so he's in the shallow end, and the older brothers and sisters are all in the deep end having a blast. They're having a great time. He watches that and decides, I want to be in the deep end. So he climbs out of the pool. He goes running around and goes running down the deck so he can get to the deep end. I jump out and I go running down to catch him because I know he can't swim and he's going to drown. And he's running and he comes right up to the edge of the pool. And before he goes in, I catch him just in time. And I go, oh, buddy, buddy, you can't go in there, man. You don't know how to swim. You'll drown. And he's like, oh, I just want to go in with him. I go, you can't. You don't know how to swim. I'll be all right. No, you won't. You'll drown. And he, oh, I'll try not to drown. 
Okay then, and I let him try. Do you see, there's things that are external that we go, that's external, I can't get there, I can't attempt it, it's not doable. There's things internal, I'm not capable, I can't do this. And in either case, he is capable. Mr. and Mrs. Incapable meet Mr. Capable. He is able to overcome anything internally and anything externally. Whatever he decides to do, whatever he pleases to do, in Psalms, that's exactly the phrase, whatever he pleases to do, he does. And it says he already knew what he would do. This is a beautiful thing because when we listen to it initially, we think it's all about the bread. But let's expand the vision because he knows what else he's going to do. He knew what he would do with the bread. That's exactly in context what he's saying. But he, didn't he also know what he was going to do with Philip? That one day Philip would believe, would go out and preach the gospel, would go out and heal and cast out demons, would go out and lead an Ethiopian who would then go back to Ethiopia and spread the gospel in Ethiopia. He knew the believers in Ethiopia before they even knew they were going to be believers. And he knew that he was going to transport Philip. That's why the question of where didn't matter to him. He was capable of things far beyond that, and he is still capable of things far beyond that. This is the beautiful part of this whole story, is that when he knows what he would do, it also comes to his point on the cross. That when Jesus is there hanging on the cross, giving his life so that his shed blood would cover all of our sins and give us an opportunity of the improbable, the impossible of coming to an audience before the living God who's holy and just and doesn't have any sin in front of him, we couldn't be there in front of him unless Jesus already knew what he would do. Oh, isn't this beautiful? This is the story of him going, I know what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to attempt it, and I'm not going to try it. I am going to do it. That's the God. That's the creator. That's the Savior. That's the person that Philip is having this conversation with. And he leaves his card on the table by feeding 5,000 people the most witnessed miracle of all to stop and say, do you understand who I am? And that's still our biggest problem to this day. The biggest challenge for me is fully understanding who God is and what, what he asks of me. He knows. He knows what you're going through right now. He knows what Philip is going through. He knows his tiredness. He knows what he's about to do. He knows that he's going to fail again in John 14, but he also knows that he's going to go out. He knows that he's going to feed the 5,000. He even knows where the bread's going to come from, that it's going to come from this boy. He knows the boy. In fact, if you think about it, there's a really cool thing. The 12 baskets get collected. How many disciples are there? Is that just coincidental? Or were there 12 baskets because there were 12 disciples and when they collected all the broken pieces and the fragments, it came out equal to be 12 baskets and they bring back the 12 baskets. That means Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish, he breaks it up and he sends it out to 5,000 plus people and after they've all eaten their fill, the remnants come back to equal exactly 12 baskets. That means that he knew how hungry each person was. 
He knew exactly their appetite so that when he broke it, it was equal to each individual of all 5,000. How many of you are hungry right now? Yeah, we're talking about food. I'm getting there. They said, I've had to say this message three times. I'm the, the, those bakery, the, the, the twice-baked croissants in Bakery Nouveau, I'm going to drive there this afternoon. <laughs> Here's the thing. He knows how hungry I am right now. If he knows that kind of detail, then those other things that are hurting in your heart, those other things that are just working on your life, those other things that are just stuck in your mind, don't you know he knows those too? Don't you know he's there right now with you, aware of what you're going through, that he's with you and he is capable? Unfortunately, he doesn't just bail us out every time, does he? He tests Philip. He takes us through challenges. He takes us through tribulations that that the testing our faith might produce. Ah, So many verses about this. What I want you to understand is that he already knows what he is going to do. In your situation right now, this seems so confusing and you don't see a way out. He already knows. He has already seen it. He's already capable of doing it. And that's who he is. He knew the boy. He knew their hunger. He knew Philip. And he knows you. Here's the last thing on this. They're all hungry. They're all tired. They're all exhausted. They're all emotional. And Jesus is with them on that. But he looks out at the crowd and he sees their need. Philip doesn't see their need. Jesus does. If we are to be followers of Christ, we have to realize that outside the walls of this room... There is a city, there are 5,000 plus people who are hungry and broken and needy and desperately need to know the name and the person of Jesus Christ. And it's as if Jesus is pulling us all together this morning and with a little smile on his face is going, where should we buy the bread? Where should we buy the bread? That word we is such a beautiful thing. He involves us in the work that he's doing. He's planted us here in this city, in this community, in this county to love on the people in this neighborhood, to see their needs and be stirred with compassion. And then he asks us, where are we to buy the bread? He'll take care of the details because he already knows what he's going to do. This isn't for us to feel overwhelmed about how dark the world has turned or how many people don't believe in Christ or what they think about the church. We're we're standing next to the God of the universe, the creator, and he is asking us, where are we to buy bread? This story isn't just about our emotions and our difficulties. It wasn't about Philip's. Philip goes on not to become just a better disciple. He goes on to present the gospel and to lead other people to Christ and to heal others and to, 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 to cast out demons out of others. We're not here this morning so that we can feel better. We're here this morning because he's inviting us along on a journey where he desperately wants to meet the needs of those who don't know him at all. The question of identity for Jesus isn't just our problem, it's their problem. We have one call to go forward and preach the gospel. That's us. As a church, Evie Free Fullerton, that should be our number one priority. I want to close with a quote. And the quote simply says this. We revel in the fact that the creator of the universe knows us. 
Then, on our part, we spend little effort to know Him, thinking He exists for us when it is actually the other way around. The greatest adventures of life will always be in discovering more of who He is, and it is in those moments that we are changed. It is in those moments that we are transformed. It is in those moments that we are called out. Let me pray for us. Lord, call us out. We see the story of Philip and and just excited by the fact of how you used him, of who you turned him into, of what you were able to transform. Lord, take our life and do the same with us. But for many of us, Lord, we're in a difficult spot right now and we feel the pain and we feel the hurt and we feel the hunger and the brokenness. Lord, let us know you are here with us. Let us feel your presence. Let us believe in the fact that you already know what you're going to do in our life. But Lord, above all, that we would have not only the confidence in you to to rest that we're okay, but Lord, that we would have the confidence that we could go out and share boldly your name, your identity to a world that desperately needs to know you too. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful for the fact that you already know this. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.